morning I had to do a little gymnastics. Had to take my shoes off to be able to count the 45 years that it was that I was baptized on July 4th, 1976, when it became the day of my day of independence from uh, sin and death. It was a long time ago. But it was the summer before my freshman year, as I was just about to go into a public high school. And during my freshman year, I began to hang around a group of guys that I had met uh, from the concert choir uh, that I was a part of. They were the good moral guys. They were good students, respectful of those in authority. But none of them were genuine believers. Some of them uh, were part of families where they attended church on Sunday, but they themselves had not sold out for Christ. We had a good time. We would go to all the home and away football games, and afterwards we'd pitch in a few bucks, end up at the local grocery store, and we would say hi to our favorite friends and neighbors by in the cover of darkness providing toilet paper and forks in their front yard. By the time of my sophomore year, uh, during the football season, uh, three of the guys in the group had uh, started dating uh, three girls on the varsity uh, cheerleading squad. So the dynamics were beginning to change. As a sophomore, this was not cool. Uh, and so uh, I knew things were a little different. It was, it was okay when they would join us afterwards in our evening exploits uh, after the games. Uh, by, but by the end of the basketball season, uh, a, a vibe had begun to occur in the group and some direction was beginning to change. There was comments about, hey, let's not do what we normally do. Let's go to the, the big parties after the game. So I knew it was coming. When one night, the majority of the group said, hey, we're, we're going to go to one of the parties. And I knew at that point I had a, a decision to make. About that same time, I'd begun to develop a relationship at my high school with a man named Mark McGoldrick, who was a staff member with Campus Crusade for Christ. Thankfully, Mark had been challenging me to grow in my faith. He was pursuing me, calling me to boldly stand for Christ at school, calling me to share my faith and to be a witness for Christ and to even consider discipling younger guys. I hadn't made a decision at that time to respond to his invitation, but he began to get me thinking that I do want to stand for Christ, not just at school, but after school. As you can see, God had created a fork in the road. A decision that I had to make. 
Was they going to continue to hang with the guys no matter what decisions they made, no matter where they went, and compromise my witness? Or would I sell out for Christ? Would I be not just talk, but walk? I remember that night because what I did impacted not only the short term in my life, but it had eternal ramifications. I was the youngest guy in the group. So I had to graciously ask the guys, hey, I need you to drive me home because I'm not going to the party. And that was the last time that I hung with that group of guys. Things changed. It was a divide. A line was drawn in the sand. But it was a great line. It was a great decision. Because not only did God begin to bring new people into my life, He began to use me in ways that I had no idea after I graduated from college and was actually a teacher at that same high school, I got reconnected with one of the guys that was in the group that was probably the closest friend to me during that time. He'd become an insurance salesman and you always go talk to your best friends. So he told me that he had given his life to Christ. which was absolutely amazing. When I asked him, how in the world did you get to that decision of selling out for Christ? He said two things. He says, Bruce, don't you remember the time we went to the beach, just the two of us, and you shared Christ with me? I'd forgotten. And the second thing he said, I also had forgotten. He said that, remember that night you chose not to go to the party? I was so intrigued by the the youngest guy in the group saying no and walking away. I was intrigued by what you had, and I didn't. You see, that that night, I not only had to make a decision in my heart, I not only had to come, come to a conclusion in my mind, I had to make a concise, decisive decision. I had to act. I had to do what was consistent with what God had been doing in my heart. And I had to prove my decision by my actions. The reason why I share this story 
is that's exactly what James is challenging those he's writing to to do. He's given them 13 self-tests for them to look at and evaluate, and he's calling for a decision. Not intellectual assent, not to say, yeah, yeah, I know that, but to act. And what we're going to look at is a passage that James wrote about 10 to 15 years after Christ had died and rose again. And remember, James is Jesus' half-brother. He grew up with him. He saw him die. He saw him resurrected. He went from, this guy's crazy, I'm sure. He thinks he's God, to, I worship him. He is God. And we're going to notice in this passage that James emulates the teachings of his brother Jesus. Because in James, the whole book, there are 21 times that he refers to the Sermon on the Mount, which was taught by Christ. And what I want to do is look at one of those self-tests that we started several weeks ago and uh, finish up that passage this morning. If you would turn with me to James chapter 3, verse 13. I'll begin there. I've got up on the screen. I'm going to use the Holcomb uh, translation. I thought it was the best for the points that I want to make and their referencing of the, the Greek terms here. This is what it says. James is asking his audience this question. Who is wise and has understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. We saw several weeks ago that James is writing to Jews who have been dispersed outside of Jerusalem. Persecution began to occur in the city of Jerusalem where the church began. And now there's Jewish Christians who are dispersed uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And he's writing a letter to Jewish believers. But what's very, very important in this, this book is that he's writing to the church knowing that in the church there are going to be those who are actual Christians and those who are pretenders. They say the right thing. They know the right information, but they have not sold out for Christ. They're pretenders. And so that's why James is asking the question is, who is wise and understanding? For the typical Jew, they knew what that meant. It referred back to Job, the first book that's written in the Bible. Uh, And it refers back to Moses. And it refers back to Solomon. 
three times in Scripture where it talks about wisdom and understanding. What did that mean? A typical Jew knew what that meant. This is what it meant. When someone says they were wise, it meant that they feared the Lord. In Job, it actually says, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Or the fear of the Lord is wisdom. When a person fears and worships God alone as their creator, their future judge, the source of truth, their Savior and their Lord, that's when they become wise. But he said, who is wise and understanding? What did it mean? Job said, understanding is to avoid evil. See, once you know who God is, what He's like then you know what you're not to be like. So you're a ruler to know if you're off base. Once you fear God, you know who He is, His holiness, His character. You know what is evil. You know evil because you know good. And that's what understanding is, is not just to know it, but to avoid it. When Moses was writing in Deuteronomy, uh, he even was challenging the children of Israel that when they go into the Promised Land, it's the final sermon before uh, they cross over the Jordan River, and he said that when people see your righteous behavior, they will say you are a wise and understanding people. Based on their moral godly conduct and then solomon in the proverbs says that those who are wise and understanding will be blessed it'll be more valuable than gold it's more important than silver it's more important than power prestige money property anything it brings eternal life and it guards a person and their life. So when James is saying, who is wise and understanding, the typical Jew knew exactly what he was saying. Who fears God, and because of that, they're avoiding evil. Several weeks ago, we looked at the implied second question that's in this passage, and that is, who is not wise and understanding? That's what we looked at last time. This week, we want to look at the answer to the question, who is wise and understanding, and what is the three-step process by which a person becomes wise and understanding. Because we saw last time, there's a three-step process by which a person becomes a pretender. If you remember, how does a person become a pretender? He shared it with us in this passage. He says they swallow the wrong seed. They listen to man's, the earth's, and demonic wisdom. They're not listening to God. They'll go receive counsel from anybody and everybody but God. So they swallow the wrong seed, the wrong wisdom. And because of that, in their heart begins to root 
Because when you plant a seed, all of a sudden the roots are put in and that's in your heart. And he said, what will happen in the heart of a pretender is two things he lists. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. That will just well up in their hearts. The root of their life will be poisoned. And because of that, the fruit then that becomes evident in their life is it's a horrific two, two words. He says, disorder and every kind of evil will be the fruit of their lives. The word disorder we looked at had to do with insurrection, absolute rebellion against authority. That's what happens. That's the three-step process by which a pretender ends up where they're at, where there's just total chaos in their life. Discord, conflict is what they're defined by. Rebellion against authority is normal in their life. So James wants to share with us today the right answer to the question, who is wise and understanding? And that's the first point for our message this morning is the correct answer, which is believers prove they fear God by their righteous and gentle lifestyle. Let me say that again. James says, how do you know who's wise and understanding? What's the right answer? You will prove it by your fear for God by your righteous and gentle lifestyle. Let's unpack this phrase. It's what it says there in James 3.13. He should show by his works, by good conduct, with wisdom's gentleness. Well, what's he saying here? It's just this little phrase here, but it's actually very profound. Show. He should show his works. The word in the Greek literally means to offer to view or put on exhibit. It's like when you go to a, a convention somewhere and you have an exhibit hall. Here's what we've got to show you. This is what you can buy. Here's how it works. One of the definitions of this word is literally means to outwardly reveal what is occurring inwardly in the heart. I think that's exactly what James was trying to say here. Don't just say you have faith. Don't just say you're a Christian. Prove it. Prove it. Show it. Exhibit it. Put it on display. James 2, chapter beforehand. Notice what James says. He says this exact same thing. Look at James 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that, safe, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, and what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. 
verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James is very clear here. What he's challenging the audience that he's preaching to, the letter that he's sending to them, he's challenging them. You who think that you are wise and understanding, are you showing it? Is it on display? Because as he said earlier, faith without works is what? Dead. Notice, as I said before, James was taking the template for what he shared in James from the Sermon on the Mount. Notice what Jesus said. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now remember that, because that's exactly what James is going to say. You practice lawlessness. That's why you think you say that you're a Christian, but you're not. So what's the point here in this little phrase that we need to prove our works uh, um, or demonstrate it by our fruits is we need to show it outwardly of what's inwardly in our hearts. And that's what comes to point number two. He says that we are to prove, or in this, uh, the verse here, verse 13, is prove his works by good conduct. Notice what Jesus said, you who practice lawlessness, notice what James says you should be practicing. Prove his works by good conduct. Lawlessness is whatever God says I should do, I don't do it. Good conduct is whatever God says is moral. The word literally means moral conduct. Whatever God says is moral, that's what I do. Notice it's the exact opposite of lawlessness. It's good conduct. It's morally right. That's why genuine believers will prove that they fear God by their godly behavior. Not simply by knowing the correct theological answers, not doing the right theological exercises on the right theological days, go on Easter, go on Christmas. That's not what it's about. A genuine believer will bear good fruit, moral conduct. And that's how he will prove his faith. But there needs to be an attitude with which that's done. And that's the last phrase there in verse 13. With wisdom's gentleness. With wisdom's gentleness. What what does that mean? With wisdom's gentleness. What James is saying is, those who uh, embrace God's real wisdom, it's going to have a natural attitude that comes with it. Have your parents ever told you you've got a tood? You got a little tude, little attitude. 
Well, God is saying here that if, if you say you're a follower of Him, there should be an attitude that comes with it. And it's this word, gentleness. Prautes. What does that mean? It's a profound word. When I did this series earlier, I, I actually did two messages just on that one word. I encourage you, if you're interested, to go listen to those. It's a profound word. What it means is an attitude where... I believe because God has given me an internal grace that God is absolutely in control of everything in my life and He is good. And that's how I live my life. Now think about that. Gentleness. I can be calm when things are out of control. When my kids are in rebellion, I can be in calm. calm. Why? Because He's in control. He's in control over my kids. I'm not at this moment. I can be gentle. It's power under control because He's in control. See, we seize control because we think He's out of control. Right? God, I've got this one. You seem to be taking a nap right now. Let me take care of it. So the attitude that comes with genuine wisdom is one of gentleness. Notice Jesus said the same. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Question. With those closest to you, Say that your conversation and actions are characterized by an inwrought grace of the soul that trusts in God's sovereign control of your life, and that's why you regularly experience His joy and peace, even in the difficult times? Or would you be known by anxiety, fear, and anger? See, James is saying this is wisdom's gentleness. His wisdom will give you gentleness. This whole passage is a a litmus test. It's a ruler by which we can align ourselves. How am I measuring up to God, His character, and His Word? That's how I encourage us all to look at this passage is how am I lining up? Because he says this is what should be true of someone who is wise and understanding. So the answer to the question was, who's wise and understanding? Prove it. If you're a genuine believer, prove it. By your good conduct that's moral and an attitude of gentleness. And then he's going to go and unpack the three-part process by which this can become true in your life and mine. In the same way that he talked about the three-part process in an unbeliever's life or a pretender's life, he does the same in this passage for uh, the believer. And so let's start with step one in the process, and that is the holy seed. Holy seed. What is that? That's when believers embrace God's Holy wisdom. 
First step in the process, holy seed, I embrace God's wisdom into my life. Because see, the pretender, what did he embrace? He embraced the world's wisdom that was natural from man and demonic. That's the seed that he swallowed. James is challenging believers to swallow the holy seed, to embrace God's holy wisdom. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Wisdom from above is first pure. So he first said there's wisdom that's from below, earthly, natural, and demonic. And now he's contrasting that and saying from above, and it's pure. Demonic, you can't help but think of anything that's dirty, right? First thing that he contrasts that with is it's pure. The word literally means to be free of contamination, undefiled. And the root word is the same word where we get the word holy. God's word is pure. It's not full of the contamination of a fallen man and his ideas. It's from God. It comes from above, from heaven to us. And it's pure. It's truth. As believers, the question is, do we believe that God's wisdom is going to be our guide for our life? See, a lot of times we can say we're a Christian. We go to church on Sunday, but what are the books that we read? What are the songs that we listen to? What's the conversation that we're having? It has nothing to do with what we say that we believe. Notice, that's what uh, David had to say in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Notice counsel. What is counsel? That's what women do when they go out for coffee. Right? He says we're not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Notice how they went from walking to, hmm, let's talk a little more about that, to, hmm, let's really sit and chat. Notice the progression, or I should say regression, of bad counselors. Notice at the very end when they're sitting with them, they're mocking God. They're scoffers. They make fun of God. And you're listening. That's why David says, we're not to do that, but in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And what will that do? Notice, because he swallows the wisdom of God... What's going to be the fruit in his life? He will be like a tree. Oh, with a root. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. The water that's refreshing, that nourishes the tree. He's planted in the right place. It will yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf will not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. It's all throughout Scripture, the same mindset that James is discussing here in this passage. 
Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? I have that question asked to me many times. How can I change with these issues in my life? I want to change, but I don't know how. David answers the question by keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. It's not a mantra I learned from my therapist. It's your word. See, which, where do I go for wisdom when I'm hurting? When I'm confused and I'm lost, where do I go, from, where do I go for wisdom? What I decide, where I decide to go for wisdom will determine what's in your heart and it will determine the fruit that will be in your life. It's all throughout Scripture. That's why God says, He is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. It's all throughout Scripture. So a genuine believer, according to James, he's going to embrace and obey God's Word. He knows it's the only source of divine truth and guidance. In faith, he knows that the Spirit will empower the Word to produce holiness and bring eternal blessings. That's the truth. So when a believer embraces God's Word, he will begin to experience a supernatural change in his heart. And that will bring us to step two of the process for becoming wise and understanding. Number two, a transformed heart. We started with a holy seed, and then now we move to a transformed heart. And what is that? It's when genuine believers will reflect God as they bless others. They will reflect God as they bless others. Notice there in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. He lists seven character qualities that are going to be a part of the life of a genuine believer. And I'm going to run through these quickly, and I'm going to ask some questions to help us kind of evaluate, is this true in my life? If I'm professing Christ, I'm a believer, the ruler is set, how am I lining up to that ruler? James is saying, because he's, he's challenging them, if you say that you're a Christian, this should be true in your heart. This should be true in your heart. This is what you desire. This is what you have affection for. This is what you want. Nothing like that uh, great statement, uh, sure, Mom, uh, you know, I'll do it, but don't want it. Makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, doesn't it? <laughs> Seven character qualities. Number one, peaceable. Those who are wise don't perpetuate conflict by their selfishness, but foster peace by their humility, by putting God and others' interests before their own. Peaceable. You know, notice in the Holman translation, you know what it actually said? Peace-loving. I love peace. 
See, if you, you first have to love peace to want to make peace. Right? You've got to want it. I'm willing to sacrifice to get it. That means I say, remember Jesus brought us at peace with the Father. How did we get peace with the Father when we were enemies? He sacrificed. That's why we have peace with the Father. He sacrificed. Philippians 2 says this, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Hebrews 12 says, Pursue peace with all men. It's a command. Romans 12, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then he goes on to say in chapter 14, So then, we pursue peace. How? By building up one another. Right there in a nutshell, right? I put others first. I'm going to build them up. That's how we have peace. Siblings. Elementary, high school, junior high, college. How do you do with your siblings? Do you compliment them? Do you encourage them when they do well? Or is everything a competition? And when they do well, mom says, great job. You're like, oh, by the way, that's in the other category, bitter jealousy. That's why there's a conflict. Rejoice with those who rejoice. No, I resent when you rejoice. Ah. Selfish ambition. I'm not interested in what you do and you getting ahead. This is about me. Oh, that causes conflict. See how James has put these side by side for us to see that if we truly love peace, am I willing to put the interests of others before myself? Am I willing to put the interests of God before myself? Number two, gentle. This is a different word for gentle. Uh, In the English, same word, but uh, in the Greek, it's a different word. It means equitable, fair, forbearing, courteous, and considerate. There literally isn't an English word for this, so they just threw out gentle. Uh, And that's, that's why it's a little confusing here, even in this passage. Question, do you work for the best for everybody? You want to be fair? Isn't that the kid's favorite line, right, when they're at least five? That's not fair. That's not right. That's not fair. Okay? Justice. Someone who is gentle, they want it to be fair. In fact, they go out of their way to treat everyone the same. See, the word is also used when it comes to favoritism. See, what causes conflict? Ladies. I did high school ministry for a long time. What happens every single year in the youth ministry? A trio. Right? Three girls. What happens in that trio? All of a sudden, two are closer than the other one, and they're left out. And then all of a sudden, these two are closer together, and this one's left out. What happens all year long? Conflict. Favoritism. 
best friend. Don't you love that? Hi, here's my best friend. So you just became less than a best friend. That causes conflict. Fair. Equal. No favoritism. Number three, reasonable. Someone who is teachable. They're compliant, not stubborn. All mothers, you can say amen. Willing to yield without rancor or disputing. That's for the teenagers. What does the word mean? It literally means to align militarily under authority. To submit oneself under authority. Not to be coerced under. Submit yourself under. Someone who is reasonable wants to be compliant. God says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I want to because I love you. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't think a lot about myself. I'm willing to do what is asked of me. And Jesus said, heaven is that man's reward. How many times does it take before you choose to consider the wise counsel of God or others? How about this one? How well do you respond to input that you didn't ask for? Which wise counselor have you pursued and given permission to speak into your life, to question your decisions, to call out your sin? Do you heed the counsel of others? Or do you resist? Stubborn. Number four, full of mercy. Someone who's wise and understanding is full of mercy. They're forgiving those who have wronged them. They're forgiving. They reach out to help whenever they see a need. That's why the fifth beatitude, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Question. Do you have the reputation for being quick to forgive and quick to extend grace? Or are you known for being easily offended, holding grudges, punishing or cutting off those relationships that have hurt you? Notice, James is giving a litmus test. Prove it. Prove it of who the believers are. That's why these words are profound. They're not just a list of words. These parallel exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a high, high standard, a high calling, which apart from Christ is impossible. Number five, full of good fruits. This is someone who does every sort of good work or deed. And as I mentioned before, they want to do good. They want it. This is what I looked for when I was a youth pastor, for uh, especially uh, high school guys. 
You see a need? Did you take care of it, or did you have to wait for me to mention it? When I saw a young man see a need, and he cared. He cared. And he wanted to get up and meet the need. Touchdown. We have just taken a step in spiritual growth. That is huge. May the Lord be praised. Notice the fourth beatitude says, Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Do you hunger for the Word of God? Do you thirst to be more Christ-like? Are you looking for ways to serve using the gifts, the talents, the time that God has given you so that you could bless others in the name of Jesus Christ? Or are you stingy with your time and your talents? You're not grateful for what you've been given, and you're not generous in giving. Number six, unwavering. What it means is not to be parted or divided. You'll notice James in the very beginning when he says a man is asking for wisdom. Here we are, same topic. Wisdom, who's wise? When he said you're asking for wisdom and you pray, what does he say is true of the person who will not hear from God and get what he asks? What man is that? It's the double-minded man. He's going two ways. On Sunday, he's going one way. The rest of the week, he's going a different way. He's a double-minded man. Interesting, James puts the exact opposite word here. Completely focused, not divided. This is a man and woman with a purpose. This is a rifle shot. No, no shotguns here. This is someone who acts with certainty, decision, consistency, no vacillation, no doubting. Question, do you act boldly? Are you confidently motivated by strong convictions? Or do you passively wait to see what others do and then follow them? I'd always have students ask me, uh, Mr. Groves, I'd like to be a leader. And I'd always say, great, lead. Initiate. Go first. Most students want to watch and follow. Unfortunately, as adults, we do the same, but we're a little more sophisticated in how we do it. Do we initiate? Do we do it with precision and confidence? Am I willing to stand when others don't? I'm unwavering. See, that's a character quality of someone who is wise and understanding. Last of all is number seven, without hypocrisy. What was Jesus' number one issue with the Pharisees? Four times in the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about their hypocrisy. On the outside, notice how the double-minded man, I look good, I say one thing, I do another. So there's a duplicity here, right? Same with a, a hypocrite. The word just means I wear a mask, like in Greek theater. I wear a mask, but I'm someone else. I'm pretending I'm acting, but it's not who I really am. 
Someone who is wise and understanding, they're not a hypocrite. What they say is what you get. What they do is who they are. Question. Why do you do acts of service? Is it because you're driven to please the Lord and bless others? Or is it because there's others watching to impress? Nothing got me more excited than when I would hear about one of the students in our youth ministry who had done an incredible deed of kindness, an incredible act of courage, faith, and it was done totally somewhere else in town. And another pastor, another parent, whatever, told me about it because it was done uh, without anybody knowing. And the only way I found out was because uh, I had to be told. I, I, just, I just couldn't get more excited than that because I knew that student was responding to a call from God to love others, and it wasn't to put on a show. Remember what Jesus, he just, he just reamed the Pharisees, right? Go on the street corner, pray, give their alms in public, make sure everyone sees, right? Nothing is more exciting than the person who wants to give generously privately because they know the Lord sees in secret. So the question is, if a genuine believer swallows the seed of the Holy Word of God, they embrace it, that begins to transform their heart to develop these seven character qualities and others. What's going to be the fruit in their life? This is what James says in verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. If you're righteous, peace. Peace should be in your heart. Peace should be in your relationships. Now, remember, Jesus also said, I bring a sword, right? There are going to be times when you stand for Christ and it's going to cause a conflict. That's different. And the issue is, is how did you share Christ? Was it in love or anger, judgment, what have you? That's another issue. But that's why Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice what it says there in that verse. It, righteousness occurs in their life because the, the peace, it, it's sown in their life. So they've adopted truth. That's why the Prince of Peace, they're believing in the Prince of Peace, who's going to rule from the city of peace, Jerusalem, which means the city of peace. It's all about peace. Satan in his rebellion, it's all about war, conflict, death. The question is, are you and I reaping a harvest of righteousness? Is that what others would look at and say as they drive by the field of your life? Wow, there's a harvest of righteousness over there. And that was sown in peace by those who cultivate in peace. And look at that harvest. 
righteousness. Here's my challenge on the screen is uh, the two wisdoms that James described. There is the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. There's the genuine believer and there's the pretender. Because remember, James is talking to a church and he knows that not everybody in that church is a genuine believer. And he's challenging them in the same way that I shared in my first story. He's challenging them to evaluate their life with these 13 tests and then to prove, make a decision, act, prove that you are wise and understanding. So the question is on the seed. See, that's where it starts. It starts with the seed. Are you swallowing on a daily basis the Word of God? Or is that something that you hope the pastor provides for you because you're malnourished throughout the week? And then you wonder why righteousness is not not the harvest that you're reaping in your relationships, your life. Next slide. So from the seed, the source of wisdom, it then begins to impact the heart, the root of the plant. And you have two options. You're going to either have a heart that desires to love God and bless other people, or notice the other column, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. It's all about me. And then the next uh, slide. What, what's the fruit? What's the bottom line fruit that's coming out of this? And by the way, teenagers, I'm, I'm just trying to help you here. I'm telling you in advance what it's going to look like with the decisions, the fork in your road. If you make the wrong decision in that fork, here's what's coming. This is what's coming. This is the fruit that you will reap. Because remember, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he might reap, he will reap. That's why God's not mocked. Do you want to see gentleness in your life? An attitude of peace, knowing that God is sovereign and good and in control? Or do you want to see, on the other hand, absolute disorder? And evil of every kind is occurring in your life and your relationships. Ironically, in this passage, James gives two challenges. One is for the believer and one is for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the challenge is stop lying to yourself. In fact, the word in the Greek means stop pretending. That's exactly what it says. You're faking it and stop it. Stop it. And it says do not be arrogant, which means humble yourself. Repent. Turn to Christ. For those who are believers, the admonition is strong. Don't be one in word only. Prove it. Prove it by your godly choices, your conduct. Which decision will you make today? Let me pray for it.